Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Abundant Life. So good to see you once again, wherever you're gathering with us from. We're glad you've gathered. For Daniel chapter 1, this is week 2 of our Daniel series. Daniel chapter 1 is where we are today. So let me ask you, did you have a good weekend? Some yes, some not, some much. What did you do this weekend? Work? Okay. Let me tell you what I did this weekend. Let me show you what I did this weekend. This was 48 hours ago. Chainsaw, cutting firewood, just in a microsecond of not paying attention, I almost cut my leg off. I'm serious. Now, now relax. I'm okay. You know, didn't get any bone, didn't get any tendon, 12 stitches, and $2,000 later, everything is okay. (laughs) Everything is okay. But Brad Evers and his sons have come out for years this time of year. We cut firewood on the farm together. And uh, yeah, I did. I could have cut my leg off. It could have been much, much worse by the grace of God. It was not. Um, Right after this happened, I didn't know Brad started taking pictures. He did. (laughs) Just in case I died, we'd have a record of it. So pull my jeans off to assess the damage. I'm starting to get lightheaded. Like I think I'm going to pass out. So I said, guys, I need to lay down. And so right here, I'm giving my last words. His son, Ty, just got his nursing degree. He's about to start at KU Med Center. So I had a medical professional there. I said, Ty, am I going to live or die? He said, you got 50-50 odds. <laughs> and so I did. I started giving my last words, but I couldn't think of any. So I just said, tell him I love him. All right, that was my last words. And then they loaded me up in the Can-Am. I had no idea this was being taken, by the way. I I really am at this point a little out of it. Like, I don't know how bad it is. I don't know for sure what's going to happen. But um, but Ty loaded me up in the Can-Am and Brad and took me back to my house, made it to the ER. And that's at the ER. This is the homemade tourniquet. Brad took the shirt off his back for a tourniquet. That is a true friend, isn't it? Took his shirt off his back to try to save my leg. You say, Phil, why are you telling us all this? I'll tell you why. Because when you preach every week, you will do anything for another illustration. <laughs> Whatever it takes for yet another sermon illustration. This one cost me 12 stitches and $2,000. You better believe I'm going to ring it out for all it's got, man. That's right. So seriously, you know why I was so irritated Friday? For one thing, I had a lot to do that day and didn't get to do any of it. Blew up my day. But the real reason I was irritated is it was a self-inflicted wound. I did it to myself when I wasn't paying attention. And I would suggest, church, that our nation is suffering from a self-inflicted wound. Generation after generation when the church has failed to pay attention. It is in the 21st century what it was for Daniel in the 605 B.C., the 6th century B.C. The walls had fallen around Jerusalem. The foundation was in erosion when Nebuchadnezzar the king came and besieged Jerusalem, leading away some 70 Hebrew captives, Daniel being among them. And just like you need two legs to stand on, and I tried to cut one of my legs off my body, 
Every society stands on legs, pillars, you might say, of society. In this case, this table represents a civilization. This table is set for a great dinner, a thing of beauty and bounty. And this is kind of a picture, I'm convinced, of what God had done for ancient Israel. He had literally set the table for them, redeeming them from Egyptian captivity, Egyptian tyranny, bringing them into a land he promised would flow with milk and honey. He set the table for them. It was a land of beauty and bounty, prosperity and plenty. He said, just don't stop being godly and living obediently because when you fall into idolatry, it's eventually gonna lead into captivity. And that's what happened in 605 BC. Now listen carefully. I said last week, we cannot read ourselves back into everything we see in Scripture. Modern America is not ancient Israel. We are not a theocracy. We are not God's chosen nation. But would you agree, there's a reason we have been called the land of opportunity. Because this nation we live is unique in all of human history in some capacity like ancient Israel. It's God that set the table for us. In this land of opportunity, of beauty and bounty and plenty and prosperity, is truly a land that would flow with milk and honey. But just like you need two legs to stand on, so does any civilization. Every civilization stands on four legs. What makes a culture a culture? It's a shared identity, a shared story, a shared sense of history, and a shared set of core values. What is happening currently in our culture, in our civilization? Increased tribalism, division, dissension. Why is that? Because we don't have that sense of shared history, shared story, a shared set of values. You see, the walls have fallen, just like it was in 605 BC. Metaphorically, long before those walls fell physically, they had fallen slowly, subtly, generation after generation inside of Daniel's city of Jerusalem. I want you to see the past so that we can understand today the present. It says this, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And this is how Daniel opens up his book. Daniel, a Hebrew prophet that was led into captivity in this ancient Babylonian city in 605 B.C. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, who were the Chaldeans? The Chaldeans were an ethnic group in the southern part of Mesopotamia. By the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the time of Daniel, it had become kind of synonymous with a Chaldean and a Babylonian. You kind of used interchangeably. Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean. But understand, a Chaldean was more than an ethnic group. It was also a religious group. It was a religion. The Chaldeans were known as magicians, the magi. Now, don't think of an illusionist like a David Copperfield illusionist, trick of the eye guy. No, magicians were those who practiced black magic. 
They were studying the occult. They were astrologers, not simply astronomers. They didn't merely study the stars. They worshiped the stars. Do you understand? A Chaldean was worshiping the demonic. And so it's Daniel who's carried off captive to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. I want you to see two things as we get rolling today. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar was waging a religious war. This was more than a war for land and a war for wealth. Of course, many wars have been fought for land and material wealth, but there was more to it going on for Nebuchadnezzar than just another city and more land that would bring his empire more wealth. No, the reality is he went specifically and purposely into the temple of the Jews, into the house of their God. God, where he stole, stole some of these sacred instruments of Jewish worship. It says he took some of the elements, the implements, for example, the golden goblets, the golden cups, the golden candelabras, and he carried them back as trophies to put in the house of his God. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's practice. Anytime he would conquer a foreign people, he thought he had conquered their foreign God. And so he worshiped a Babylonian God called Marduk. And so he would literally take the elements of worship from the house of Daniel's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God of heaven, he would take these as trophies and put them like a trophy case into the house of his God. It was a religious war. In so doing, he was saying, I haven't just conquered you, I have conquered your God. Our God is greater than your God. It was a religious war, but not only was it a religious war, it was a culture war. It was a culture war. See, there's a reason he brought back Daniel and dozens of other of Hebrew children. At this time, Daniel is probably some 14, maybe 15 years of age. And don't think he was just being benevolent and compassionate by keeping these young Hebrew children alive. No, he knew they are worth more to him alive than if he killed them. His purpose was to bring them back to Babylon where he was going to teach them the worldview, the moral values, the religion of the Chaldeans. If you want to change a culture, you get a hold of the youngest generation. And in so doing, he was going to reprogram, re-educate these young Hebrew children so that they would grow up to be Babylonians. And within just a generation or two, there'd be no memory whatsoever of Hebrew culture, no memory whatsoever of the Hebrew God. He was trying to assimilate the people he conquered into Babylonian society so that they would become like him. I want you to see Nebuchadnezzar knew that the destruction and transformation of a civilization demanded the indoctrination of the youngest generation. And that's what's about to happen for these young Hebrews. They're going to go to a three-year school where they're going to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And in so doing, they're going to learn the worldview of the Chaldeans, the moral values of the Chaldeans, the, the religious system of the Chaldeans, hoping to indoctrinate them, re-educate them in the ways and worldview of the Chaldeans. And it's true of any civilization. It takes three generations. So his name was J.D. Unwin. He was a social anthropologist at the University of Oxford. He studied over 80 civilizations spanning some 5,000 years. He made a couple of observations recorded in a book that he wrote in the 1930s. The first observation was this. It takes three generations to change a culture, three generations to erase the memory of one civilization and launch a new civilization. 
Not only that, he taught, having studied over 80 civilizations, that there is a direct connection between societies that thrive and societies that have success and societies that choose a core value of restraint sexually. In other words, after studying these civilizations, over 80 of them, he discovered there's a direct relationship between a civilization's success and that same civilization practicing sexual restraint. And in his study, what he discovered is that when a civilization no longer practices sexual restraint, that it's not long thereafter that that civilization begins to collapse Now, couple what he said in the 1930s with what somebody else said in the 1930s. William Reich was his name. He is the author, he is the architect, he is the father of the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s. Here's what he said. Sexual repression is linked to political repression. Wilhelm Reich was an associate and in the inner circle of Sigmund Freud. You may not know who Sigmund Freud is. I studied all these guys in Western Civ at the University of Kansas, that great bastion and pillar of Christianity that it is. (laughs) Sigmund Freud taught that we're all sexual creatures from our mother's womb and that our core identity is directly tied to our sexuality. And if you really want to be your authentic self, then it's the complete unrestrained liberation of the libido. Is this sounding at all familiar? Yeah, I studied these guys in Western Civ. Karl Marx, his partner, Frederick Engels, Sigmund Freud, Frederick Nietzsche, what I saw was that nobody really believed this stuff. These guys were kind of creepy. I mean, Sigmund Freud was like, he was hung up on sex. It really, really was. Like, he needed counseling. He needed a therapist. You know, he, the therapist needed a therapist. That's kind of what I thought. You guys are a little creepy, a little bit loony. Nobody really believes this stuff. The problem is lots of people did. I thought, like everybody else, you know, I'm just going to leave. I just had to do this to get the grade, and I'm going to leave and forget everything I learned and go to get a work. Now, here, here's what happened. Many people did leave, but they took what they learned with them. And today they're sitting in America's corporate boardrooms, public school classrooms, and in some cases the halls of Congress, elected to the highest levels of government in the land. Wilhelm Reich was not only an associate of Sigmund Freud, but he was a disciple of Karl Marx. He launched what was called the Frankfurt Institute in Frankfurt, Germany, shortly after World War I. As a Marxist, he and others wanted to study why there was no Marxist revolution in Germany like they thought would happen after World War I. So they launched what was the Frankfurt Institute to propagate and promote Marxism in Germany. But Marxists and fascists hate each other. And when they saw Nazi fascism was trending and Marxism was declining, they realized we need to get out of town. We need a new place to land. And where they landed was in 1935 in New York City in Columbia University. Now, he's the father and the author of the sexual revolution. Understand what he meant by this. As a disciple of Karl Marx, sexual repression is linked to political repression. What he was talking about is that if we can launch a sexual revolution, it would lead to a political revolution and the destruction of Western civilization. 
See, what they taught was that if you could pit sexual freedom with religious freedom, religious freedom will lose, sexual freedom will win, and we can completely overhaul Western civilization and the destruction of a Judeo-Christian nation. You see, the sexual revolution didn't cause the sexual revolution. Something else caused the sexual revolution, and what it was was 30 years of Marxism that had completely found its way into America's educational system. They were very ingenious. They did not try to insert Marxism into the political system, but rather the educational system. And church, when I talk about Marxism, I am not really talking about a political system. I'm talking about a religion. It's more than a political system, it is a religion. It's a religion of atheism. Now I told you last week, when you see the word Babylon in scripture, sometimes it's a reference to the ancient city literally, but more times than not, it is a metaphor for a wicked world system that is anti-God, that is anti-Christ, that is anti-anything that is holy. And you can watch how Babylon has morphed and kind of gone under the surface, and then it resurfaces based on generation to generation, it changes names, but it's always still basically the same. It is a system that is anti-God, that's anti the kingdom of God, that stands in complete opposition to God. Now think about this for just a moment. Why would Satan hate the West? Why would he hate Western civilization? 1 John 5, 19, it says the entire world lies under the power of the wicked one. But do you understand that Eastern Hemisphere primarily is completely under Satan's power? where billions of people at this very moment in the eastern hemisphere of our globe is under the prison and deception of religion, counterfeit religions like Hinduism, Taoism, Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Islam, or Chinese communism. You see, he controls the east, but he does not control the west. He hates Christian America. And the reason he does is that it's from the Western Hemisphere that Christian missionaries went into the world in the 19th and 20th centuries and took Jesus to places and people where the name of Jesus had never been heard. You better believe Satan hates America and wants nothing less than the complete destruction of this Judeo-Christian nation. Now, what is a Judeo-Christian nation, Judeo-Christian culture? Basically, it's the worldview of those of us that are Christians because America was founded fundamentally by Christians with a Christian worldview. Not that everything in America has ever been completely Christian, but generally speaking, the average American had a Christian worldview that says, God is God and I am not. That's a Christian worldview that says he's in charge and I am not. My life needs to revolve around him as opposed to him revolving around me. That, that's a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview of marriage, for example, of sexuality, is radically different than the worldview of a Babylonian society with an anything-goes mentality sexually. So you can begin to see Karl Marx and his disciples, like Wilhelm Reich, understood that you could take down a Judeo-Christian civilization by launching a sexual revolution. And that's what began to happen in the 1930s. Now, J.D. Unwin said, it takes three generations to change a culture, to conquer it from within. We're currently living at the beginning of the third generation from the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s. See, this is why it feels like things have radically changed so quickly. 
People's heads are spinning. I get this question all the time. Pastor Phil, what is going on? I mean, we've seen such radical changes in the worldview and moral values culturally, morally, spiritually, just in the last 10 and 20 years. How did this happen? The point is, it didn't just happen. It's been generations in the making since the 1930s, a slow drip, a very slow drip, like America hooked up to an IV line, just a slow drip, one drip after another, after another, of changing the worldview of American generation after generation. That's how it happened. Think about this, just 20 years ago, statistically, 35% of Americans were for changing the definition of marriage to include more than simply male and female relationships. 35%, that was it. Now, in a Judeo-Christian civilization, we define marriage as a man and a woman. You know why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse 4, marriage in the eyes of God is between a man and a woman. I didn't say it, Jesus did. As followers of Jesus, he gets to make the decision. Today, 20 years later, 70% of Americans support redefining marriage, not simply as a man and a woman, but same-sex couples. Now, 20 years is not that long. How did it double in 20 years? Well, here's the point. It didn't simply happen instantly. It happened gradually, a slow drip. How, how, How did it happen? See, we're watching our civilization being conquered from within. The walls had fallen in 605 BC. Yes, it was an outside army conquering Jerusalem, but the truth is, it was a self-inflicted wound, generation after generation after generation. Long before the walls were conquered from without, those walls had fallen from within. They went from being godly in this land that would flow with milk and honey They turned to counterfeit gods, idolatry, and then God said, you're going to go into captivity. That is what is happening today in the 21st century. How is it 20 years ago, just 20 years ago? If somebody looked at you and said, I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, you would have said, I'm sorry to hear that. Let me help you find some help to deal with that because you clearly are not a woman. Scientifically, biologically, it is not possible for a man to become a woman or vice versa. It's just a fact. But now, if you say that, like I just said that, you're called a hater and a bigot. All of a sudden, you're the immoral one for simply stating the facts. It's science. It's, it's biology. How, how did we become the immoral one? Because we simply, this is the facts. It didn't just happen. It's been a slow drip. The reality is I don't hate anybody, not not one person. As a Christian, guess what that means? With one who has a Judeo-Christian worldview, what that means is I love everybody unconditionally. Regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of your orientation, regardless of any of your decisions, like, Because I follow Jesus, I love what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves you. I don't care about anything else about you. 
Uh, if you moved in next door to me, I'm sure we could be great neighbors. If we went to coffee, we, we might end you know, up being friends. But now we live at a time that says, if you disagree with me in any capacity, you're my enemy. How did that happen? When did that happen? It didn't just happen. You see, this has been planned for many, many generations, the destruction of Judeo-Christian civilization. It's what I'm calling in the weeks ahead a Babylonian worldview because this is more than a war for simply wealth and land. Nebuchadnezzar was fighting a religious war and a culture war. When total sexual liberation is embraced, this was the findings of J.D. Unwin a social anthropologist, a scientist. He was not a Baptist, Bible-thumping preacher, just for clarity. This is what a scientist found. After studying over 80 civilizations throughout 5,000 years of human history, when the total sexual liberation is embraced, society is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. At this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with a greater social energy. This is where we are living now in 21st century America. We are being taken over by another culture, conquered by another culture. In the same way Nebuchadnezzar wanted to conquer Hebrew culture, he wanted to conquer that worldview. We are now seeing the collapse of a civilization. Civilization that stands on four legs, four pillars. Civilization of a Judeo-Christian nation that stands on four specific areas all of which are targeted for destruction. There are four pillars of Judeo-Christian civilization that have been targeted for destruction, faith, family, finances, and freedom. And I understand this is not like a happy, clappy sermon. I'm sorry. I really don't like being a Debbie Downer. No offense to Debbie, wherever you are. But here's the reality. If we don't understand how we got here, we have no understanding of how to get out of here. Okay? You, you can't begin to understand where you're going unless you retrace the steps of where you've been. This is how we got here. There are four pillars or legs of a Judeo-Christian civilization that have been targeted very systematically for destruction. Faith, family, finances, and freedom. The first thing that has to go is religion. Marxism makes war on religion. This is a religious war. Understand, Marx was a religious person. When God gets a demotion, man gets a promotion. Marxism is about self-deification. And so consequently, the first leg that has to go is Christianity. The first leg that has to go is religion. That's why Marxism always makes war on religion. Joseph Stalin murdered 20 million Russian Christians. Mao Zedong, who led the communist revolution in China in the 1940s, murdered 65 million Chinese. It's war on religion, that's the first thing. Nebuchadnezzar was making a war on religion, Daniel's religion. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. 
Mao Zedong put it this way. In 1927, before launching this Marxist revolution in China that still shapes today, clear into the 21st century, the lives of 1.5 billion Chinese. These are four authorities, pillars, or legs of a civilization, political, family, religious, and masculine. All four of these are under attack in the United States in the 21st century. Because these are the pillars, according to Mao Zedong, that hold up civilization. Marx framed them a little bit different. You might frame them a little bit different, but they're fundamentally the same. He said these are the legs holding up society that must be targeted for destruction, political, family, religious, and masculine. I want you to notice something. A Babylonian worldview and a Babylonian system hates strong men. Because strong men represent a danger to their system. Strong men represent the opposition. They hate the masculine. There is a reason that we have gone from Leave It to Beaver and the Cosbys in the 1980s, where the father of the family is seen as strong and noble and humble and, and the leader of the family. Today, the longest-running sitcom in American history is Bart Simpson. Homer, where the dad is a beer-drinking, belching buffoon. How do we get from Leave it to Beaver and the Cosby Show to The Simpsons? See, it's in the educational system. It's in the pop culture. It's in entertainment. you got to take out daddy. You know why? Because if you take out daddy, you can take out the family. And so consequently, in some communities across America, there's a 71% fatherless rate in America. Overall, it's almost 50% fatherless rate in America. you got to take out dad. Now, here's the reality. There is historically, unfortunately, because of bad sinful men, something called male chauvinism. Historically, it's true. Bad sinful men have a way of dominating women. Let me say that a real man of God does not dominate a woman. It's true. See, if you still have the power of critical thinking, you can pick out what's true about a given narrative and not embrace the entire given narrative. And the reality is we come from a place and a time where there has been historic racism and oppression. There has been historic male domination and male chauvinism. But listen very carefully. You don't deal with bad men by making all men weak men and considering all men bad men. Otherwise, you no longer have strong men to deal with the bad men. And I'm telling you that today because Babylonian systems hate strong men. They hate fathers. They hate daddies. Did you know that it's been proven scientifically, statistically, that generational poverty comes back to the breakdown of the family? Fatherlessness causes poverty. That's the number one reason for generational poverty. But when you hear on the news, income inequality and poverty, oh no, they'll never talk about fatherlessness, do they? You know why? Because they don't want you to know about that and get to the real problem. 
And I'm trying to say today, it's time to bring back some God-inspired manhood to America. It's time to bring back some God-inspired masculinity to the family. It's time for the fathers to come home, accept responsibility, reject passivity, lead courageously. A real man walks in integrity. A real man walks in humility. He loves his wife sacrificially, and he loves his family selflessly. But in our Babylonian society, we have emasculated men from their God-given identity. It's all part of the plan. Take out the father, destroy the family. It's happening. It's happening. It is not coincidental at all. I want you to notice the text, what we read. Nebuchadnezzar gave charge of Daniel and the other Hebrew young men to Asphanaz, chief of the eunuchs. Now, we don't have a lot of farm boys and farm girls here today. You may not know what a eunuch is, but it's the difference between a bull and a steer. If you still don't know what it is, Google it later today, not right now. But this was very common in the ancient days. If you were going to be trained to somehow minister in the king's inner court, his inner cabinet, you're going to spend a lot of time in the king's palace, which meant you're going to spend a lot of time around the king's harem, his wives, his concubines. And so they would make these men eunuchs just in case they led a rebellion or revolution. It would not be testosterone-driven. Winky eye. You know, Daniel was immediately emasculated because he was a threat otherwise to the king. Now, long after the city of Babylon died, the spirit of Babylon lives on. It lives on today in 21st century America. There's a reason why they want to take you out as a man because if God to put you in that family as a father in some way as the protector and the provider, Satan wants to take you out. You see, you're seen as the enemy, the opposition. These four authorities, political, family, religious, and masculine, are the embodiment of the whole feudal patriarchal ideology and system, and they are the four thick ropes binding the Chinese people, particularly the peasants. Now, the irony is Mao Zedong, when he launched this Marxist revolution, would murder six 65 million Chinese, most of which were peasants. The irony and hypocrisy is that by identifying the oppressed, the oppressed themselves become the oppressors. That is always the end of Marxism. And this is what we see happening even now, where everyone is viewed as an oppressor or oppressed. You're no longer seen as Dr. King. His dream was that all of us could be judged, not for the color of our skin, but the content of one's character. You're no longer seen, though, as an individual. You're seen for the class, and you don't get a choice. You were born into it. You're either an oppressor or you are oppressed. And what happens is critical theory has eliminated critical thinking. See, critical theory says, don't, don't, don't think critically and, and pick parts of the narrative that might be true and not parts of the narrative that aren't true. No, you're either all in or you're not at all. See, it's part of the plan. That is what gives more tribalism, polarization, division. That's how you take down a civilization. 
Daniel 1.3, then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Notice Nebuchadnezzar didn't give his mom and dad a trip to Babylon. No, the plan is separate the children from the parents. That sound familiar? Do you know that in some states, in these United States, there is a legal battle going on right now for parental rights? Like as a parent, you have a right to know if your middle school daughter wants to have an abortion. But in some states, no, you don't have that right, not legally. Do you know as a parent, you have a right to know if your child's going through gender dysphoria? But in some states, you don't have that right to know. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew, separate the children from the parents. Now, we don't know a lot about Daniel's parents. I'll talk more about them next week, because next week we're basically launching into a parental seminar. But we do know they must have been godly parents. They had prepared their son to purpose in his heart before he got to Babylon. Because he was going to be separated from mom and dad for the rest of his life, separated from his family to learn Babylonian ideology. And it's happening today in the 21st century. This is what Karl Marx said about religion. Religion is the opposition. Of course, he's the one famously that said religion is the opioid of the people. Here's how he put it in another place. Without God, man will be empowered, free to shape his reality and become his own God so that he will revolve round himself and therefore round his true son. Religion is only the illusory son, which revolves round man as long as he does not revolve round himself. See, what he was teaching is that if there is no God, then man becomes God. In a Judeo-Christian culture, we know we're not God. God is God. We align our life around him. He doesn't align his life around us. But understand, in a secularized society, and that's what we are becoming, a secularized society begins practicing self-idolatry. Self-idolatry says, I'm God. So instead of all of us aligning our life around him, all of you got to align your life around me. And if you don't, you're my enemy. In fact, you must hate me. See, that's the bully tactic of the Babylonians. Secularization leads to religion. Don't think for a moment atheists don't practice religion. They do. In the 1930s, it was the first release of the Humanist Manifesto. The first release of the Humanist Manifesto called Secular Humanism a religion. It is a religion. See, secularism says there is no God or God doesn't matter. God's not there. God doesn't care. He's irrelevant to our life. That's secularism. We're becoming a secularized society. Social scientists tell us there's more nuns on surveys than ever before. Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. When asked about a religious affiliation, more Americans are putting none. I'm not religious at all. That's a secularized society. But secularism is where God gets a demotion that leads to man getting a promotion. Secular humanism is man's deification. I'm God. There is no God but me. 
Secular humanism is a religion, and Marxism is the name of the church. And Karl Marx, Frederick Engels being the high priest. And this is how we got where we are today with the first and most important leg of civilization being broken, targeted for destruction. Now look what they say about family. Remember the second leg is family? This was written by Frederick Engels, partner, and authoring this philosophy and this worldview, this religion known as Marxism. He was a contemporary of Karl Marx. The modern individual family is founded on the open or concealed slavery of the wife. Within the family, he is the bourgeois, and his wife is the proletariat. That's oppressor and oppressed, because everywhere in this society are systems of oppression and oppressor. You're one or the other. So in this case, if you're the husband, you're an oppressor. Just ask my wife, Krista. Poor woman. See, we're talking about the destruction of civilization. Take out the first leg of faith, take out the second leg family, the others will follow. And this is what we see happening in our lifetimes. This is what Daniel saw happen in his lifetime. God had set the table for us like he did ancient Israel, land that would flow with milk and honey. He said, guys, I love you. This is yours. I've set the table for you. I have redeemed you from slavery in Egyptian tyranny. I've given you this land that flowed with milk and honey, a land of beauty and bounty, prosperity and plenty. Just keep being godly. Keep living obediently because if you turn to idols and idolatry, it will lead to captivity. That is the pattern of nations in history. That is the rise and fall of nations. So it is today in the 21st century. This is the mission statement of BLM, the organization. Black Lives Matter, I hope we can all agree, but this is something altogether different. This is not the dream of Dr. King. This is not the civil rights movement launched by Dr. King. The civil rights movement has been hijacked by a different movement altogether. The modern civil rights movement is known as the social justice movement, and it's not anything like the civil rights movement. It is no longer a biblical and honorable movement. It is a political movement. Now, you won't find this on the BLM website anymore. They took it down, got too much flack, but the word is out. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. Let me interpret that. We, we disrupt, we want to destroy the biblically defined family of a mommy and a daddy. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. We foster queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. This is not the dream of Dr. King. The modern social justice movement is not the civil rights movement. They're two different things. I'm telling you this because Christians and churches like ours are drinking the Kool-Aid on a cult 
called Marxism, a religion called Marxism. And for those that don't know what it means to drink the Kool-Aid, I'm dating myself again, all right? The drink the Kool-Aid is, is, is when, you buy, when you buy into a cult, all right? That's what I'm talking about. Now, a, a cult, the nature of a cult is it conceals its true identity. It's by definition. It conceals its real agenda. One of the founders of the organization BLM, Patrice Kohlers, identifies as a trained Marxist. And this is why it's not just about black justice. To now support black justice, you also have to support queer theory and alternative lifestyles that God calls immoral. But what did Dr. King say? Here's one of the things he's remembered for, of all the things he's remembered for, one of the wisest things I think he ever said. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. Did you hear what he said? The church has to be reminded that we're not the servant of the state. We're not the slave of the state. God's called us to be the conscience of the state. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5 when he said, you're the salt of the earth. In Jesus' day, salt was a preservative. It's how you preserve something from decay. And in that way, the church is to preserve society from moral decay, spiritual decay, social decay. He said, we're the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. You see, what he was saying is that politics don't shape the moral or spiritual climate of a nation. It's actually the pulpits that shape the moral, spiritual climate of the nation. You see, it's simply politics that reflect it. You and I as the body of Christ, we're the ones that are supposed to shape it. But we didn't. Jesus said, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out on the ground. And that's a picture of the modern American church that stands for nothing, that has watered down what it means to be a Christian. A.W. Tozier said in some churches, the gospel has been so watered down, if it were poison, it wouldn't kill anybody. And if it were medicine, it wouldn't cure anybody. See, when the first two legs fall, the next one does too. Finances. When I say finances, what I mean is economic freedom. See, Marxism is about government dependency, and government dependency brings government captivity. But what's unique in all of world history is the chance to provide for your own family, start your own business, work your own land, take financial responsibility in this land of opportunity. And there's one last leg that has to fall. Freedom. Why is freedom what is known in Western civilization? I'll tell you why. Because freedom is a core value of Christianity. Why is it that a Muslim from Saudi Arabia can come from there to here and worship freely? But a Christian from here cannot go there and worship freely. I'll tell you why. Because Christianity values freedom for everybody. 
And this is why it worked for so long. Whether you were politically right or left, it didn't matter. There was a set of core values everyone agreed on, the First Amendment being one of them, the, the number one most important pillar of our Constitution, the freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. But you understand now what we're seeing is the breakdown of that pillar of freedom. You used to be able to say what you wanted and everybody would defend your right to say it. Freedom of speech, but not now. You might get canceled. You used to have the freedom to believe what you wanted to in this land of America. We could all disagree, but we all agreed you have a right to believe whatever you want to believe. Not now. You might get canceled. You agree with the wrong per right person, agree with the wrong person, you get the wrong people again, you're canceled, forget it, we're coming after you now. That's called cultural Marxism. And the walls have fallen. The foundation is in erosion. Now there's good news. There's good news. In that third generation, there's good news. The American church reflects more of Babylon than it does the Bible. And right there's the problem. I want you to understand, church, the problem didn't begin in the White House. The problem didn't begin in the schoolhouse. It began in the church house. With Christians who reflect more of Babel than the Bible. See, it started generations ago. In 2015, the Supreme Court overturned 31 state marriage amendments protecting biblical marriage in their state. 31 states had voted by the will of the people to protect biblical marriage in their state. 2015, it was all overturned. Gay marriage, for example, was legalized in all 50 states. But listen carefully. Gay marriage was not the attack on the sacred institution that God holds dear of marriage. The real erosion began generations ago when self-professing Christians no longer decided they needed to keep their vows they took before God and men, and we started sleeping with each other. didn't begin with same-sex marriage. That's just the fruition. The origin began when we failed to take seriously our own worldview, set of moral values. See, Judeo-Christian civilization values chastity before marriage because sex is sacred. I'm not naive. I know the single scene, the hookup scene. Everyone's sleeping with everybody. See, I want you to see the problem didn't start out there. It started in here. The salt is no longer salty. As Dr. King said, we're no longer the moral conscience that we used to be. Which means we need to get Babel out of us and more of the Bible again into us. No, you can't get out of Babylon, but it's time to get Babylon out of us. So this is a picture of Ty and I. Ty's 23. He drove me to the hospital on Friday. He saved my life. I told Ty, the longer the story lives, it's going to get better with time. 
I was passed out from the pain. He gave me a field blood transfusion right there. He sewed up my severed artery with nothing but a needle from a locust tree. Saved my life. Now I show you this picture because it's a picture of something that's also happening. The younger generation saved the older generation. It was the 1960s and 1970s. There was something going on called the sexual revolution, but there was another revolution going on. One remembered even today by secular historians. It was written about by Time Magazine at the height of the sexual revolution. There was something called the Jesus Revolution. There was revival going on in that youngest generation. Yes, we're in that third generation since the sexual revolution. Our civilization is a reflection, but I'm trying to tell you there's also revival taking place. There's an awakening going on where God is drawing people back to himself. And I wanna be a part of that revival, yes? I wanna be a part of that awakening before it's too late. You study ancient Israel. There was revivals going on in Judah. And we'll either see revival or ruin. That's the rise and fall of nations. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. Ezekiel was a prophet of God that wrote from Babylon. He was in the second deportation of Nebuchadnezzar in 597. He wrote his book of Ezekiel from Babylon as a captive. In Ezekiel 22, he's doing an autopsy of a nation that had collapsed. He's doing an autopsy of a nation that was once alive but had died. And this is the conclusion he came to in verse 30. So I sought, this is God, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. You see, there are walls that are physical and there are walls that are metaphorical. And what God was saying is that long before the walls around Jerusalem had fallen, the walls metaphorically had already fallen. They had collapsed, not from without, but from within. I sought for a man or a woman among them that would stand in the gap and stand before me on behalf of the land, but I found no one. And my friends, I am confident, I'm even optimistic, because when God searches our land, he sees men and women of God that have not bowed the knee to Babel. We're going to stand on the Bible. And I'm trying to tell you, this is how we rebuild the walls of our nation. We repair this crumbling foundation is through prayer and repentance. Would you join me in that movement of prayer and repentance? God, would you forgive us? Come heal our land. Would you stand with me right now, wherever you're watching from, maybe in your living room, another campus right here in this auditorium? You know what God is teaching? That together our lives make up a wall, a spiritual wall, an invisible wall. The walls around the city were defensive. They kept an outside enemy from getting in. Our lives personally as the people of God form that fortification of our generation in our nation. So I'm gonna ask you right now, we just extend your hands to heaven. It's a sign of humility before God, just a sign of surrender. And let's just begin to pray for a move of God, revival, awakening. Jesus, this is our prayer. These are difficult days. 
but days of unprecedented opportunity to take new ground for God, new ground for the King. And Jesus, we are just one church. We're just one person. But we are one church. We are one person. And we commit today to stand before you on behalf of our land. Together we make up a wall of fortification. We refuse to let our land fall. And Jesus, we claim this promise in some way that you made to the ancient Hebrews, the people of God in that day, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. God, we long for revival, another Jesus revolution, that you would bring redemption in the face of ruin, that we stand together as one people, the people of God, that names the name of Jesus, repenting of our sin for the glory of God and the good of this land, I pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you give Jesus the glory today? Praise him, would you? Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.